Today, we have Dale Kessler from Realty 365. He's here to talk about his real estate career and how it evolved over the last several years. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by First United Land Transfer. Enjoy the conversation. Dale, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Victor. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. And uh, so. We have an extra guest here. Okay, we're going to have to tell Siri to uh, just stand back a little bit. Okay. So, you know, my impression uh, of, of you and your career, uh, for years we used to deal with uh, uh, doing title on bank-owned properties. Your name was involved in the transaction. I never actually got to, to meet you uh, until probably a, a few years ago. Uh, the All the documents would be done electronically, the wire for the earnest money would show up. And uh, so tell us a little bit about your career, how you got started, and uh, where where you're going today. So it's a pretty common uh, theme for me to not show up to the closings historically with dealing with the bank owns because in a sense, my client's not there. My client is the bank. They're not showing up to the closing. We handle all that documentation prior to us actually getting to the closing table. So the only reason for me to go there would be to pick up a check. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the way I saw it. So uh, we would just have those checks mailed over. So it kept me from having a real personal relationship with a lot of people. And in recent, in the last couple years, we're starting to change that as we start to do more traditional deals. Um, my history is I, I grew up in the Pocono area, small town called Penargel. Um, Northampton County. Yep, Northampton edge. County. And then uh, wasn't, a, wasn't a very good student, went to community college. I think I graduated high school with a, a 1.93 or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. So when you went into the last day of school and you had to take those tests with the, the little Scantron sheets and fill the holes in, if I knew I could get a zero on that test, I literally would walk in there and fill the holes in and I'd walk out. I just, I, I didn't care. It, it wasn't something important to me. Um, But when I went to community college, I realized that I didn't want to work in a factory. I wanted to be something more. So I started to apply myself, Um, you know, and pretty quickly I realized the hard work would pay off. So uh, in community college, I transferred, eventually transferred to Lehigh, uh, got my degree in accounting and worked for, at the time was a big five accounting firm, KPMG, Uh, was an auditor for them for a couple years. And, um, you know, eventually I went back to Lehigh for my master's. And while I was there, I took a job with Pete Ramos uh, over at Century 21. Very well Uh, known, yes. His his son owns a construction company, Pete Jr. And, um, you know, I ended up running his office, which eventually became a full-time job. And I saw agents making money on the real estate side of the business because he shared space with his father. And I figured, well, I could do the CPA exam. I'm sure I could pass the real estate test. Yeah. What year was this? <sighs> Early 2000s. Okay. Um, I think I've been in business since around 2004. So somewhere around 2004. Um, and once I got my license, uh, it's within two or three months, I had a couple investors, sold about four or five, six properties, realized that uh, <clears throat> it was the direction I really wanted to go. Uh, stayed at Century 21 for a brief period, eventually went to Keller Williams. Um, Keller Williams 
is a great company. They have uh, the systems in place to teach you how to get to the next level. And that was really important to me. Uh, but somewhere along the way, with my accounting background, my desire to learn about the investment properties, eventually for my own benefit, I figured if I'm working with these investors, eventually if I want to buy properties myself, I can get paid to learn how to do what they do. So that was my push towards investors. Okay. Have you ever worked with uh, residential buyers? Uh, I did, and and I have most recently, I think this last year, I've probably worked with about 30, 40 residential buyers, uh, both on the listing side and the purchase side. Okay. So in the beginning, it was, you know, when you first get in, it's, where do I belong? Okay. You know, what I was told constantly, you got to find a niche, you got to find something that uh, resonates with you or that you can do better than someone else. I think that applies to just about any type of business. How do you set yourself apart? Correct. And again, just getting your feet wet, you got to figure these things out. I was, you know, I was t late twenties, um, just trying to figure out where I belong. So, uh, started putting offers in on bank owned homes uh, at the time, Jack Gross was, and still is the man, you know, when it comes to buying those kind of properties, uh, just a great agent knows the business very well. And I decided that, um, there wasn't a lot of competition there at the time. And I just did an analysis on it with my business background and said, you know, this fits with me. I understand the construction side. I understand the accounting side. I can help investors set up LLCs, do 1031 exchanges. I understand all those things. That's my differentiating factor. Uh, so eventually I just decided I wanted to get into working with the bank owned stuff. And, you know, I, I, made a decision. So this is why you're at Keller Williams now. While correct? I'm at Keller Williams, okay. I made a decision that I will not take another retail listing. The next listing I take, no matter what it is, it's going to be bank owned, no matter what. It's bank owned. That's it. I don't care if it's five years. I'm not freaking doing it. Like I'm going after this. And I didn't take a listing till it was a bank owned. Um, because I worked at it so diligently, Eventually, I hooked up with my current broker. Uh, he owns my company, formerly known as Aureo Complete. It's what we're known for here. We've just recently had a, had a name change. Uh, I've actually purchased the company. And he told me more in a 10-minute conversation than anybody told me in two years. Uh, the people at Keller Williams, it was very much like a family. But there were people in Keller Williams that were not in my market that had the bank-owned stuff that I reached out to that were just unwilling to share. And it, it turned me off. Uh, this gentleman brought me in under his wing and, and really, uh, when I got my first listing, showed me exactly what to do and how to do. So, uh, you know. Now, what year was this? And was this in uh, where that industry was emerging, the bank-owns were, were starting to, to increase every year? Again, it was a... It was a timing. So timing it was, it, it is was, everything. It, sure. Yeah, it was, it was, it, it was, you know, people say the, the harder I work, the luckier I get. And I live by that. I just lived, breathed, ate real estate. And it's all I did. I sacrificed everything at the time and including, you know, my health. Yeah, I still worked out, but I wasn't necessarily eating very healthy. Um, I would just get the gym in and it wasn't focused and, and, um, my health was paying the price for that. You know, I had minimal endurance. Uh, and, and again, that's a, 
a big aspect of my life is my health. And You're I just... talking about your late 20s now, right? Yep. Okay. So I'm in my late 20s, um, into my early 30s, just getting started with the bank owned stuff. And uh, I was 100% focused on the business. I was probably three to five nights a week sleeping in my office, never going home. Now, your office, has it always been in Allentown? Yes, my office has always. So my main okay. office, I have a second office down in Langhorne, PA. Okay. Uh, that technically is the main office, but I've always worked out of the Allentown area. Okay. Uh, I started out, I started out at the in, the, in the back office of a bail bonds company. So a buddy of mine owned a bail bonds company and he had some space that he wanted to sublease and I needed somewhere to go separate from my house. So I leased it. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of where I got started. And then that was our first office. Was that Joe? No, yeah. it was actually... Uh, I know Joe had a, so a Bail Bonds company. Th this guy, Jesse, um, Jesse Shive, he owned SBI okay. Bail Bonds. I went there first. Eventually, I went up to, to around 10th and Hamilton uh, next to Delicioso's Pizzeria. I had a spot there. Joe Gonzalez owned that building, I and I kind of took yeah. care of that. I remember when Joey was there. And then eventually I purchased uh, my current building at 34 South Fifth Street and uh, moved my operation there. Okay. So kept it pretty low-key and private, Not you know, given so much can be done technology-wise, you know, just through the Internet, paperwork, everything. So back then when your REO career started to take off, uh, what was your role with REO Complete? What were you, uh, just your team and your people working on uh, your transactions? Were you growing the company or did they have a broker inside that, uh, was it a traditional type broker as well? No, so uh, my broker, his name's Rich Beaumont. He, uh, he's actually pure REO. Okay. Like, wants nothing to do with retail, like REO's his thing absolutely was great at it. He's recently stepped away from the business a bit uh, to focus more on other businesses that he's got going on, uh, which is in part why I had the, uh, you know, I, w I had the opportunity to purchase the company from him. Um, but it was strictly REO. I was strictly REO for up until about two or three years ago. Uh, that's when I decided to start making a shift. It got to the point in the business, I'm getting a little bit ahead, um, I've done a lot of deals. There was years where I've done over 300 transactions without a team. My team consisted of a couple of admin and a couple people running to different properties and, and dropping things off for me. But at the end of the day, it was killing me. And I knew one of two things was going to happen. I was either going to figure out how to put systems in place or I was going to destroy it. Like one of the, because I just couldn't do anymore. Um, so I figured out how to get the systems in place. And once I did that, things started to really click. A few years into, after, after your this uh, was career about, started taking off? This was about five years ago. Okay. Five, six years ago is when I finally put the systems in place. Uh, a person in the industry that I'm, that I'm good friends with had said to me, listen, until you let those fires burn and handle what you need to handle, it's not going to get any better. Like sometimes you just have to let the fires burn so you can get things straight. You know, because in the business, many of us are firefighters. We are putting out, I'm sure in your business and most businesses that are successful, you're constantly putting out fires that you have to handle. 
because your skill set is you get things closed. You know, I learned to outsource the things that I wasn't necessarily good at and hand those off to other people and only stay focused on the things that I'm good at, which freed my time up to be able to do more, to spend more time thinking about who I was, where I wanted my business to go, and what kind of legacy I actually wanted to leave. Because up to that point, I there was no thoughts of legacy. Uh, there was no thoughts of growing a business. Um, it was all about me, and that's it. That's all I cared about was me. Uh, and caring about yourself is very important, but doing it in the right way. You know, there's there's times you need to be selfish, because in order for you to be selfless, you have to be selfish first. You know, some people don't realize I can't help them until I've helped myself first, built a strong foundation. And now I can help the other people around me that I care about. You know, I didn't do it right the first time. I helped other people. I let my ego get in, get, get in there because I'm doing so many deals. There's nobody touching me in the market. It, as an individual agent, there was no one touching me. And I let my ego get in the way. And sooner or later, the universe, God, whatever you want to call it, will punch you right in the face. And he punched me in the face. <laughs> so... Did you ever feel good about your career? Did you ever feel like, wow, I really accomplished something, I'm proud of myself, uh, or did you never give yourself that credit? Uh, I did. I, I felt a huge sense of accomplishment within the business. Uh, I, remember, I remember when I would look at the, the top people in, in the Valley and, and the kind of numbers they were doing, and I was like... I can't even sell 10, 15 properties. Now, was How? this a different business model, the top 15? Were they doing residential, commercial, or um, mix, or were they doing didn't really know. I didn't really know. Okay. So, you know, you're sometimes you're sometimes ignorance is bliss, you know, which is, which is the old saying, and, and it's true. But as you start to understand numbers and understand things and break down people's businesses, on the surface, you see them as successful because they're closing X number of deals. Um, but when you really break it down, you start to realize how they actually acquired that business and it makes sense. So at the time, I was looking at the, the top people that were closing two, three, 400 deals. And I was like, wow, like I can't even close 15, 20 deals. How in the world are they doing that? That's almost impossible. But eventually I got to the place where I was closing those number of deals. And, you know, at, I had to step back and say, listen, what did you say before you got started? Because there were times that I couldn't get to some of these agents and it was very frustrating. Um, I was like, I, I said to myself before I became successful, if I ever get there, I will never be that way. Like, I'll never act that way. I will always be accessible. I won't forget where I've come from. and. I just, I never wanted to be that. And eventually I turned into that person. I wasn't accessible. Um, I wasn't taking phone calls. I was turning people away and I was becoming everything I didn't want to become. Um, never really forgot where I came from, but started to. And thankfully I realized I'm forgetting these things and this is part of the problem. So there were a couple key things like that that actually caused me to 
opened my mind up to something different and took me down a different path, mm -hmm. which has gotten me to kind of where I am now. Well, I think we all evolve as people. I, you know, I look back uh, uh, 20, 30, even 40 years ago, I'm certainly not the same person I was uh, in my young, as a young adult, uh, you know, I felt a certain arrogance when I had uh, success in business. And, but it wasn't until I had uh, a failure or two until mm -hmm. it really, it humbles you and makes you appreciate the things that you do have. And uh, so I, uh, I think most people, they don't, uh, or most people, uh, entrepreneurs, people in business, they hopefully they don't see failures as failures, but uh, maybe the opportunities to, to move forward and to, to change things, yep. things that didn't work. And today, given the, the technology and the transparency that we can have, so many people want you to believe that their life is 100% okay and on point. Um, I try to bring a little different flavor. Like, if you want to love part of me, you have to love all of me. That includes my light and my dark. And there's a crazy asshole in there and there's also a super fun loving guy, um, you know, and, and I don't try to hide that from anyone, but it also wrapping it up a little nicer, bringing things across to people in the right way uh, goes a long way. And there was a time where I felt being just completely raw and, and that's the way I needed to be because this is who I am. You can wrap that package up a little nicer. And I'm, I'm, I'm learning to do that much better for, for a long time. Um, I had the reputation, and I probably still have the reputation of not being accessible, um, not being super helpful, just more or less than anything, just not answering the phone, and it was difficult to get a hold of me. Uh, but what people don't understand is when you get to a point and you're doing so many transactions, you can only be so accessible. So what I've tried to do now is make it so that the agents can answer their own questions. Uh, so when I'm posting things for sale, I'll give them directions and it's pretty inclusive. Uh, when they actually get accepted offers, it's very inclusive on step-by-step -step exactly what to do. Uh, but now I'm taking it a step further. I'm actually starting to give some educational stuff. Um, I tell people, which sometimes, it doesn't rub anyone the wrong way, but kind of like a drug dealer. Your first one's free. <laughs> so when you're looking to purchase a property, if you are not pre-approved with a mortgage and we're working with you, we'll show you the first house. After the first one, all I ask is you get pre-approved. We need to talk, talk to a lender because without talking to a lender, we really don't, we're just, we're just throwing darts at the wall. We, we don't sure. know what we're trying to, to get to accomplish and we don't know where you're at. So in order to know where you're going to go, you have to know where you're at. I think that's the first thing pretty much a newly licensed realtor would learn that, you know, get your, get your client pre-approved. And I was a stickler for, if you are not pre-approved and you don't give that to me, I will not show you a house. Um, listen, everybody can do their business in their own way, but I'm open to change. And uh, some of the people that I work with from a coaching perspective, opened my mind to, what about if you did it this way? How do you feel about that? Mm -hmm. And it made sense to me. And it's the same thing now with, I, I apply that concept to questions in regards to properties. So an agent who's newer in the business or who I haven't really dealt with too much, 
I have no problem taking their calls and helping them out on the phone, especially if they're honest with me up front. Listen, the bank-owned listing that you have, this is the first time I'm doing this. I, I don't really know. Here's the things I've done already, but I'm not sure about this. I will spend an hour on the phone with you if it takes that. Thank you for being honest and let and, and not trying to fake it till you make it. So the other thing is if you're a more seasoned agent and you're calling me with questions, I'll answer those questions. But in the future, if you haven't done your homework and you just want me to give you the easy answer, um, I'm going to ask that you just do some homework first or look at in these specific places to try to find answers. Okay. So what can you say to an agent who, who is showing a buyer a bank-owned property? You know, uh, we get to see uh, the transactions. Uh, the buyer's agent typically will refer the, uh, the buyer to us. We get to see it's an emotional experience at the settlement table. And, uh, you know, they're buying their first house or they're buying their next biggest house. They're moving out of the area. Uh, it's an emotional and hopefully it's always a, a pleasant experience. That's the, the goal. When an agent is showing uh, a buyer a bank-owned property, what are the differences that you can tell, things that you can uh, – maybe suggestions on uh, uh, compared to a seller who raised their kids uh, in their house and, you know, uh, they made the curtains on the wall. They're selling that house and it has so many memories versus a bank that owns the property and, it, and is, is currently selling. What can, you, what can you say to the realtor or to the, to the client, to the buyer, uh, the differences on what to expect? So some of the, the key differences are first and foremost – you're buying that property 100% as is. So regardless of, of whether or not the bank decides to do any repairs, because some of the bank-owned homes are actually being repaired. Uh, that's been a, a trend for the last five, six, seven years, uh, repairing them before they hit the market. Okay. So, but if we're talking, you know, your old school bank-owned home that's not been touched. The bank took it over and they're selling it 100% as is. Uh, there's no seller's disclosure. So you're buying it as is when you close. If there's any problems that you didn't research, inspect, they're on you. You can attempt to file suit, but the way the bank's contracts are written, chances are it's it's not worth your time. Um, the second thing is, and the, the biggest thing that I tell people is, from a top-down view, you are going to be purchasing this property as is, where is. You are going to have to jump through hoops. The bank isn't jumping through any hoops. They're dictating the transaction. It's not a traditional where a lot of give and take goes on on both sides. It's more you're taking a lot more in, in, in that transaction. But at the end of the day, when the dust settles... You hope you got a good enough deal on the property that made it all worth its while. If you're a first-time home buyer, super emotional. Uh, I would, I would be drilling home to my clients as their agent representative that you know this is a bank-owned property. There's going to potentially be some time delays. If you have any time crunches that you have to be out of your property at the end of the month, a title issue could pop up and all of a sudden you're not closing for another 60 days. So you've got to be prepared for those types of things up front. And if you prepare them for it, So I guess be the good. best advice to the buyer's agent is 
to know what uh, the personality of your clients are, to Correct. know if they have uh, uh, the stomach for maybe uh, a rocky ride. Yep. Uh, or, uh, and they're in a position to do so. So let's say my, my buyer is someone who uh, is renting from mom and dad, and they're in a month-to-month lease. They just have to give a 30-day notice or 15-day notice, and there's no time crunch there. Um, that's the first indicator. They're, they're a good potential purchaser. Uh, now you have someone who also turns out to also be pretty handy. So this buyer's pretty handy, and the house that they're really interested in has a few cosmetic issues that someone handy could really take care of. Now all of a sudden, I'm mentally checking off things in my head that this person is someone that I can also steer towards some bank-owned homes, and we can also get them some equity at the end of the day. So they put in a little sweat equity. All of a sudden, the value of the property that they purchase goes up uh, significantly depending on what repairs you're doing. So I know uh, for buyers, there's uh, renovation loans, mm-hmm. uh, FHA renovation loans, uh, 203K, I Correct. believe. Uh, what about traditional FHA loans uh, for to buy a bank-owned property? Are those challenges with the appraisals and the inspections? Uh, are Is that something that's common? Uh, it is common. So as the agent representing the buyer, uh, it's their duty to make sure that they understand when they walk into that property what to look for. So they should really be having a good conversation. Most agents say, listen, I'm not a lender. I don't approach my business that way. Because if I knew nothing about lending, how in the world when I'm standing in the supermarket am I going to have a conversation, spark a conversation with the guy in front of me or behind me, you know, shooting the shit. Where are you from? Oh, you renting? You don't mind me asking, what are you paying rent? Do you know that you could actually buy a house in this neighborhood over here? Because it also sounds like you have kids, or I see your kids. You could purchase a house for the same amount you're paying in rent. You could purchase a house in this potentially better school district um, or this area that you really want to be. Well, you know, I, I never really explored that. Now, all of a sudden, if you know programs that exist, listen, there's a program out there for somebody who has a 580 credit score, and you're telling me you're around 600, that you can get a loan and you only have to put 3% down and your tax return's coming and you've got money coming back. Maybe right now is a good time for you to buy. You should probably at least talk to my lender. I tell people, look, I am not a lender, but I know enough to be dangerous. So I can help you understand there's something out there that you may not have to rent anymore and you can actually buy a house in a better area and many times spend less money per month. And you're building equity. Like as an agent, if you don't have that understanding, how are you going to survive? This market's great. Anybody can sell a house right now. There is a huge influx of agents. Uh, Everybody and their brother is getting their license right now. Sooner or later, the market's going to shift again. And the only people who are going to survive are the ones who were willing to put their time in to learn about title, 
to learn about mortgages, to learn about everything there is to know about the home inspection, real estate, systems, kitchens, baths, what to look for, what kind of houses work for this type of person, reading people, what kind of people are they? Are they type A? What are they? Like you, there's a lot involved in selling real estate. Some people think it's easy. And I tell those people, which I saw a saying on Facebook or somewhere that you're not paying me for this deal. You're paying for me for the last 15 years of my education. That's where my value comes from. And that's where my value come from. You know, I've probably closed in the last 12, 15 years, over 2,300 transactions. And I'm not an overly intelligent person. I've just worked really hard. But by seeing all of those transactions, especially from the bank owned side, I've seen a lot of things seen that can every go right possible wrong. situation. Correct. Not necessarily every possible, uh, almost, but a but good chunk of them. There's always new things around the corner. <laughs> so then yeah. I can better educate the buyers. I can better educate regular sellers, uh, my bank owned clients, pretty much everybody. You know, it, it adds value. So you, you said the market is going to shift from everything I hear um, people telling me, realtors, lenders, people in the industry, they say that we should see another year, 2020, like we did for 2019. Right now, everybody would say that there's not enough residential homes for sale within a certain price range and there's more buyers. So if it shifts, where do you see it? Do you sh see it shift in... Uh, values, or do you see a shift in interest rates or buyers and sellers? How do you see it shifting? Well, there's a lot of I mean, there's a lot of factors that play into it. So now, you know, we have international markets, we have um, student loan debt at all times highs. How is that going to actually impact the real estate industry, the stock markets? Those are all intertwined. So for me to sit here and say, I know where it's specifically going to go or come from, I have no idea. I, I'd be totally honest. I have no idea where it's going to come from. We just know it's going to come. There's always the cycle. Sometimes so, I wonder if even the economists have any idea. Yeah, and a lot yeah, of times they, they, they don't. And look, there's a, there's a lot of artificial um, – they're artificially, in a sense, holding down interest rates. So because government officials are making certain decisions on keeping interest rates at a certain level, that is, in a sense, not allowing pure capitalism to do its thing. And when you do that for too long, something else is going to give. And what that something else is, I don't know. But I do know right now uh, there's an all-time low for housing. So they need builders. So builders are going to start building again. And what happened the last time? Builders were left holding so many properties, yeah. they couldn't sell. They had to give away, or they ended up getting foreclosed on. And then all those properties were half done, went to someone else through foreclosure sale. I remember 2004, 5, 6, uh, values just started to to go up, you know, yep. uh, in incredibly high. And it everybody felt like there's a bubble around the corner. And it was not a big surprise. You know, we noticed it, uh, you know, certainly from a title perspective, interest rates kept coming down and we saw a lot of refinances. And that ended uh, right around like the end of 2013. Mm -hmm. uh, the uh, real estate bubble was somewhere around 2007, 
2008. And that was pretty drastic. Uh, but it doesn't seem like the indications uh, would say that if there is a shift, it, it would be very drastic, like within a few months or even a, a year, I think. Uh, uh, or I'd, uh, what's your thoughts on that? Do you feel like there's any indications where if there is a shift, it would be drastic? Uh, I don't. I think we learned our lesson from the last one to a degree. So we learned our lesson just like when the stock market crashed back in the day. Uh, they learned lessons. They put things in place to protect. And we never saw such a drastic hit, but there were always corrections and things that happened. Uh, I don't necessarily seeing a 2008, 2009, seeing that happen again. Um, but there's going to be a shift. It's got to correct. So where that comes from is unknown. Just like the last time when it really crashed, they didn't expect it. For whatever reason, they didn't expect it. But it happened. So I see the next year or two, things are going to pretty much stay where they are now. But as you start getting further and further out, the interest rates can only stay that low for so long. Prices can only go so high. Sooner or later, those corrections have to start happening. So typically what I do is um, I'll look at California, Arizona, and Florida. Those are key destination places. Uh, a lot of foreign investment happens. You can get a good indicator of where our market's going to be in a few years as to where they are now. That's that's what I did, you know, back when the market crashed. They were crashing two to three years before us, and then it finally hit us here. Didn't hit us as drastic. Again, why? Because there was a lot of foreign investment in those areas, and those foreign investors would come in, and, and, and depending on where the dollar was to the yen or all those different things, they would be able to purchase properties. Uh, we don't get a lot of foreign investment here, so the market didn't fluctuate as much. We obviously had a good amount of foreclosures, but nothing as drastic as like Southern California and South Florida, everything was a foreclosure. And the values just plummeted so fast. Uh, they didn't know what hit them when it hit them. We didn't see such a drastic shift. So that's kind of, and that's in my opinion, why we still have some coming through the pipe. So there are a lot of realtors uh, in the Lehigh Valley that would be, uh, curious about uh, how to work with uh, putting an offer in on a bank-owned uh, property. Uh, what can you say to that? And how would you be available? Would you be accessible if uh, realtors would have questions? Yeah, yeah definitely. Um, so as far as putting offers in, so in the MLS, there's a, there's a spot in there, agent remarks, and, and that gives you instructions on how to put, uh, if it's my listing, okay. it tells you specifically on what you need to do. So over the last few years, things have evolved where a lot of these offers are being made on the uh, websites. So instead of sending me the offer uh, directly and me running through it, you just upload them into a portal. So my, all my listings will direct you on specifically how those things are handled. Uh, if someone's interested in finding out a little bit more about the property, again, I always just tell people, look, we don't dig too much. So my job is to go out, see what's there, and value it. Uh, so what I see is pretty much what they see. So if an agent goes into a property and they're making an offer and their offer is an FHA offer, but when they were in the property, they went into the basement, they didn't take notice all the copper was gone. Well, as is, 
no copper, FHA loan, mechanicals have to be on, (laughs) that's not going to work. So again, newer agents, it's like when we first started driving and when I first started driving stick, how am I supposed to shift, steer, look around, turn signal and everything else at the same time? At first it was hard, but as you get used to it and you get good at it, you can do that and more. Uh, so newer agents, it's it's going to be, it's just going to seem like there's a lot of steps there. But as you get more seasoned, it'll become second nature. Um, so you really just need to pay attention to what it says in the MLS. When you're in a property, pay attention to these things. When you're in the basement, if your client's financed, what kind of financing are they getting? Keep your eyes peeled. If you're getting a, an FHA loan, if you're getting... Um, USDA, just know what the requirements are for those types of loans. Get with your lender partner. Like, just get with them. I've got uh, a couple great lender partners that I work with currently. They've got a multitude of products that fit pretty much any buyer's needs. So from doing 203K rehab loan type properties to conventional uh, financing that actually doesn't require utilities to be on and doesn't actually even require you to escrow for certain repairs. So there's products out there that you could actually use for your clients. Now, you also, again, have to take your clients in mind. If my client is a handyman and does a lot of repairs themselves, me getting them into a conventional deal with no utilities on because they know they have to replace some copper, do a couple plumbing things, and they can totally handle that, not a problem, that's a product I'm going to potentially use with them. If they are the guy who you do not want touching any of your stuff because everything they turn to just either dies or gets destroyed, that's not necessarily the person that I want getting that loan unless they have ample funds to pay someone else to do it. So you just you just have to adjust you know, what you're doing and how you're dealing with different people depending on who they are. Okay. So uh, when uh, you came in this morning, you were telling me that you're doing a presentation for realtors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Uh, So today's Wednesday. This coming Wednesday is the 29th of January. I'm actually doing a presentation on getting your offers accepted on bank-owned homes, the do's and don'ts. So many agents are finding that there's a lack of inventory. They're having a hard time getting offers accepted. And they're just not really knowing specifically what what they can do to give their clients an edge. And even if it's not an edge, it's putting their client in the best light given their personal circumstances so that they amplify the opportunity for their client to be the one who gets accepted. So we're going to go over a lot of the things that I've learned over time in what actually makes your client stand out to not only the banks, but those concepts can also go for just, you know, your regular traditional sale. Uh, if, if you have a house listed and you have multiple offers on it, you can apply the same concepts to a multiple offer situation with a traditional deal. The nice thing about a traditional deal is now we have emotion. So that emotion that's involved on the traditional deal, I'm telling my buyers who have potentially in this scenario, a, a child who's Uh, disabled or something like that, or even if they just want to, you know, they want to raise their family. They're they're a young couple who want to also 
make memories in this house, write a letter. You know, that doesn't necessarily work with the banks, but it does work with somebody who's lived in the house for the last 30 years and raised their family. Okay. So this uh, uh, class, this instruction that you're giving next Wednesday, it's over at GLVR, South Correct. Commerce Way. Correct. What time? Uh, the pre-registration starts about 1030. Okay. So... Um, in the training room? In the training room. So, at, so I wasn't going to have like a, a, sign, a sign up. I didn't really feel it was warned. Like I will sign up beforehand. Now, all of a sudden, I'm getting quite a few realtors who are actually reaching out to so me. So I think they can hold like 60, 70 people okay. there. Uh, what happens when you get 100 agents show up? So maybe you should have a sign, <laughs> a sign up. How can, they, how can someone uh, contact you and let you know that they're, they're coming? Uh, so if they want to, they can email me uh, at dk dot r-e-o-c at gmail.com that's my email address uh you can text me 610-573-9695 they can text me as well and i'll get that texting me is it don't call me okay there's a facebook event too i saw and in fact that i even i noticed it uh, on facebook uh can they sign up that way as well uh so on facebook i put a posting out oh, there. Oh, it was a post. Yeah, okay. I didn't actually set up as an event. Okay. Um, that's a good idea, though. Let me, I'm going to look into that. Maybe I'll, I'll shift it into an event, which then will allow you to sign up right through there. Um, you're smart. Smart guy. <laughs> <laughs> Dale, thanks so much for coming in. I learned a lot about you. Appreciate uh, it. Thank you. Uh, it uh, means a lot to us. Thank you. Take care. Thanks. Yeah.